98% of federal cases end in plea bargains. Is this just? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. At the federal level, the number of cases that end in plea bargain has been going up for years to the point where like less than 2% of cases actually go to trial. And there aren't that many cases at the federal level. There's a lot more at the state level, but this same phenomenon is happening at the state level. So much so that some states like Pennsylvania and Texas, that they're up to almost 97 plus percent of cases end with plea bargains. And there's lots of reasons that the courts like plea bargains. You don't have to have all the cases. You don't have to have all the witnesses, all the expense of trials, all the expense of investigation. And you, you know, there's advantages for the defendant. They know exactly what they're going to get when they go into trial. So they don't have the fear that they would otherwise have. So, so what's the problem with plea bargains? I think one of the things you have to start off with is God cares greatly about justice. I mean, in fact, one of the things he commands is that, you know, do justly, love mercy. But he says, do justly. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a really key thing. And so the point of the courts, the point of the justice system is to get justice. And so when you go into it and you say our goal is to achieve justice, and justice requires a lot, then you do things in a certain way. When you get to the point where they are today, what they're doing with plea bargains is the goal is to avoid cost. And that's very different than trying to reach justice. And, and it's not always just cost. It can be cost and it can be political advantage. It can be. But in the end, the central point has ceased to be we must get justice. And so you end up changing things because now with a plea bargain, it can be I can get someone to plead to something that's, that's a lie. If you'll just lie and say you did this, we won't even go to trial. Maybe the maybe the, the district attorney's trying to get convictions in a certain area. So he's interested in that. The point stops being that we actually want to achieve justice because justice is complicated. Like you said, they walk into the courtroom and the, the person knows that they're gonna get the answer really is is both sides don't know yet. I mean, in fact the point of it is that the court works together to determine what is just. Plea bargaining says let's just short circuit that process. Let's just cut down and let's and so justice ceases to be the point, and so, that's a fundamental problem. Which it might be worth kind of probably most people listening know what a plea bargain is, but if anyone doesn't, so the government accuses you of a crime, um, whether you did it or not, and then you know they they file charges against you, and then you know the first step is you have to um, you know plead to, to simplify things. The first step is you have to say, are you going to say you're in a, innocent or are you going to plead guilty and admit that you did it? You know, if you plead uh, that you're not guilty, then, you know, traditionally we think that, you know, the the government presents their case. You have the trial, you bring in the jury, and the government presents its case of here's how, why we think the person committed the crime. You present your defense, and then they decide whether you're guilty or innocent and whether you need to be punished. Um, but, you know, in recent decades, there's been a big rise of negotiated things where they skip this entirely, uh, and the negotiation is over that plead. Are you going to plead guilty or innocent? And they um, basically convince you to plead uh, that you're guilty and admit that you did it. They offer you either you know, a reduced uh, 
crimes where they're not going to they're going to drop certain charges. And so, you know, say they are accusing you of murder and theft. They'll drop the murder and you'll just plead guilty to, to theft. Or, or sometimes it's about the sentence that they won't produce, pursue the death penalty or things like that. And so there's this negotiation and they come up with this plea bargain and get the judge to approve it. And now that's what you'll they'll, they'll skip the whole trial and you'll, you'll just serve your sentence. You know, inherent justice is truth and understanding. And the, one of the issues with the plea bargaining system is there's no desire for light. There's no desire to dispel the darkness to figure out what happened is what I mean by that. And then say, therefore, these are what the consequences should be. That's all put aside. And the answer is, how do we punish this person or what punishment can we get him to agree to accept without caring what the truth is and without making the truth known? So there is, in the plea bargain system, there's a lot of darkness because there is no idea that, that light is what that actually causes justice to happen in a, in a society. It's actually that sins are exposed, that crimes are exposed, that you understand this is what the people did. This is, you understand this is how they do it, and it's by bringing it to light that you get justice. When the whole system works in darkness in a, in a district attorney's office – that's a big problem because you can't have justice without light. I mean, and some of this really goes back to a rejection of the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. Because in the end, I mean, there's a part of it where we could sit here and talk about all the pragmatic reasons, all the, all the positive means from actually pursuing justice and how that affects society in a positive way where light comes in. But the answer is, is the reason you do it isn't those things. The reason you do it is because God says you should do it. And God says, I've ordered things in a way and I've structured things in a way. And so there's a part of it. But the net result is, is we've lost our connection between how justice actually works out in the world. We don't even know why we're seeking justice anymore. We don't even know. We've, we've lost all of these things. And in the end, because we reject the sovereignty of God, we even lose our ability to understand the connection between justice and and what we're seeking and why we're seeking it. And specifically, as a society, one of the reasons we're embracing plea bargains is we go it's cheaper. Right. And when we say that, what we're really saying is justice is too costly. Right. Because to actually get justice, you have to spend money. It takes, like, real work. It's really hard. It costs not just the government, but it costs people to come in and testify. It has real costs on all levels and as a society, we say justice isn't work, worth it. That's really what the plea bargain system is saying. Right. Justice isn't worth the cost. And I think what we need to recognize is, yes, it is. And the church needs to be saying, yes, it is. And one of the reasons it's worth the cost is because it's reflecting the basic nature of God. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, right? I mean, when it says the name of the Lord, he's saying this is, this is Moses speaking in his, his, the song of Moses when he's ending his ministry, you know, because he's about to die. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. I mean, the name is, Moses is saying the name of God is is justice, and he's without injustice. And when the church goes, and the church is going, justice isn't that important. It doesn't matter that much. And the society says justice isn't that important. Then all of a sudden you get into a, a plea bargain situation because you've rejected how much God has ordered the world that he blesses societies that are just. 
if you have that as a root understanding, even when it's not, even unbelievers can accept that that righteousness exalts a nation, that justice, which is very tied to righteousness, that it actually is what strengthens a nation. But we don't see that anymore as a society because the church isn't proclaiming that. And so because of that, we go, we're not going willing to spend the money on justice. Do you, I mean, th- do you think there's any sense that we're not willing to spend that money because we don't actually believe that the system is going to produce justice? I do think that what we've done is perverted the system so that it doesn't produce justice before plea bargains got popular, which I think is the answer to your question. If you look at what happened in our system, our system started out where both the defense and the prosecutor are members of the court. They're both members of the court. And the reason they're both members of the court, because the court system was designed not to be as adversarial as it has become. It was designed to be, let's figure out what's true. It was designed to be a place where light was brought in, and both sides were supposed to bring all the light they could, right? You're not allowed to cheat as a lawyer, but if you think there's something that's exculpatory, you certainly should bring it forward. Now we have everybody's playing political games, everybody's trying to hide things, everybody's trying to manipulate the court so that darkness is in the court. When you have a court system that is based on bringing light to the situation and then let judgment come, that's a situation where you're trying to get justice. I mean, at some point it was designed to be adversarial and that there is a, you know, a, def- a t- attorney assigned to you as your defense attorney who is making money by but to have by an advocate doing a good is job different as a I'm talking about I'm talking about degree, the degree to which it has moved. I mean, when you look at things like Clarence Darrow and some of the different, I mean, there's there, the idea of like everyone to use what whatever strategy, whatever tactic you can use. It doesn't. My goal is to get you off, no matter what. That's not how it was intended to be. Right, and and, 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 that, and that my job is to prosecute you through any. I mean, and technically, is, it still is not that way. Not that people don't violate right. the rules, but I mean, technically, you can't argue something that right. You but know when the to be person, false. but when the people believe that's what it is, it doesn't matter that much what the system actually is. What because, the what the regulations of the system actually are, because right. a, ju- a attorney can still get in trouble for doing some of these things. But when you have the television shows that have for decades been promoting the attorney that's sleazy and that is playing games around the edges and stuff. That's the system that we all think it should be instead of the actual law goes. If you find something that from your client that proves he's guilty, you have to give that to the prosecutor. We don't. I mean, now, if he tells you something, you're protected. But there's other things where you actually have a duty to expose and we go, you don't have a duty to expose. I mean, this episode is not meant to be about how far the legal system has moved across the board. And I think that may be worth doing, but it's worth I think it's worth just mentioning that as we start to discuss it. It's moved more than we realize it has. I think it's important to realize that a fundamental aspect of justice is the same crime gets the same punishment. Because unless you have the same crime get the same punishment, you can't be just. Right? Somebody commits murder and you say to one guy, well, I'm going to let you off because I like you. You say to the other guy, we're going to put you to death. Well, you're inherently unjust. And so part of it is the discovery part, but then part of it is the punishment part. That if you're saying, well, this person committed murder, these two people both committed murder. This, and I understand that I'm not – I'm saying when you deal with the same extenuating circumstances and stuff, that these two people committed murder, but one we're going to let get off for a year and the other one is going to be put to death, even though they did the same thing. 
that's inherently unjust. And the plea bargain system pushes towards that result. I mean, and one of the things is from the from a biblical point of view, being willing to say you're guilty, being willing to confess, in most cases doesn't change the p- fundamental penalty. I mean, murder, it's not like that you should be put to death. But if you confess that you did the murder, well, then you just have to be locked up in a cell for a period of time. I mean, that's not what Scripture says. Murder gets the death penalty. And it doesn't matter whether you confess to the murder. It doesn't matter whether they found out you did the murder you should be put to death. It does make a difference in cases of theft, but those right. are cases of voluntary confession where where nobody else necessarily knows about it and you're coming forward, which if we're talking about a case where somebody is being locked up and already charged with a crime, at that point, it's moot. You're, you're past the point at which your confession makes a difference, biblically speaking. And, you know, really the a lot of the issues with the plea bargain system are issues in the law because, you know, there's so much more flexibility in the punishments and, and things of that nature that, uh, that, 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 that are in our current legal system versus, you know, the, uh, the Old Testament law where, you know, if you murder, there's not a question of whether you're going to negotiate to get whether you're going to get the death penalty or life in prison because it was a uh, sin against God and it was killing someone made in God's image and God said the punishment for that is death. So there was, there's not wiggle room. There's not room where you can say, well, he confessed to it, so you know we agreed we aren't going to follow through on what God told us we need to do to this person. And you have you know, and that's what that's what they're doing, you know, in a lot of cases. I think if we can vit, if we consider Leviticus nineteen thirteen through sixteen. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Inherent injustice, when he defines it there, he's saying the same punishment happens to the poor or to the rich. You can't change based on the nature of that person. And that includes how cooperative they are because the the crime is not how much they cooperate with the authorities. The crime is whether they committed the crime. And what we've basically done is determine punishment not based on the crime, so that the same crime gets different punishment. We're we're determining punishment based on the relationship that the person has with other people. And really what we're doing is we're moving it from that they sinned against God or they sinned against other people to they sinned against the government. You know what I mean? Because in and the end, too it, often it becomes they sinned against the prosecutor, right. meaning they said something that was rude to the prosecutor, so he's not going to give them a plea bargain, or he's going to give a completely different plea bargain than he's giving to the person across the street right. or in the room ac- across the hall that committed the same crime. And you look, and you know, the certain black advocacy groups, I mean, they point out that the plea bargains that are given to blacks are a lot different than the plea bargains given to whites. And the reality is that's what we're doing. That prosecutor who's in a certain class and was raised 
among a certain group of people. They have a certain affinity for that group of people. And so they have some white collar worker come in that stole $1,000 and they treat them one way and they treat the black that stole $1,000 a different way that came from a different economic strata and wasn't in the... And so all of a sudden you get the prosecutor because he likes you, because he feels camaraderie with you, or you didn't say something rude to him, or you didn't wear clothes in a certain way. All of a sudden, it's not the crime that's determining the punishment. It's your relationship with a man that's determining the punishment. And that's really, really dangerous. And, you know, perhaps the prosecutor, you know, could justify the difference. Um, because, you know, perhaps he's going to say, well, this person is, is going to be, is going to reoffend and this person isn't. But the, the point is, is, are there, is there a standard of justice that when the person has broken the law that they should get a certain punishment? And, and and that's the issue is, and is that's what we've thrown away. I mean, we talked about this when we did the due process episode that the the picture of justice is right a, a blindfolded woman holding scales. I mean, in the the whole point of the justice system, the whole point of that representation is to say that justice does not care what you look like. Justice can't justice can't see you. It can only weigh your actions. It can only weigh what you did. And the plea bargaining system it perverts justice by its nature because. The, prospect, the person who's offering you that deal can clearly see you, and, and obviously the things he's offering you are dependent upon all these other things independent of what you've done. And, and a big issue is you know, just the size, the number of laws that we have, and so the number of crimes that are committed, and the fact that it's just impossible for the prosecutor to prosecute all the crimes. It's just impossible. Um, like, like you know, it's like the you know an, an example, like the police officer pulling you over for speeding. He they they're not pulling over everyone, so they pull over certain people, and they're given discretion over are they going to give you a ticket? And I'm sure you know you could find bias in who they give tickets to and who they don't give tickets to, and that's I mean that's an inequity right there where they're they're deciding who am I going to come after? And, you, and it's the same thing with with the plea bargain. But when you talk about the law system, what I see is a much bigger problem related to to plea bargains is the way that they have classified the same crime as multiple different categories in the law. So you can have the same crime and there'll be a statute that makes it a class A felony, a class B felony, a class C felony, a class D felony, a class E felony, a class J, right? I mean, they have all these different felony levels that they've created because the government, the legislature has been trying to fight this problem because they do see the problem and it is a huge problem. And the legislature recognizes it's a huge problem, which is why they've, the, the prosecutors have all gone to plea bargains because what they started to say is if you've committed this crime, this is the punishment that you get and we need to equalize punishment across the board. But then what they did is they passed a law. So you have six different choices that you can charge the person with for the same crime. And so now it's no longer that it's this crime and the judge is deciding what the penalty is. Now the prosecutor's choosing which of those six that are all about the same crime you're going you to charge with. So all of a sudden you can have it range from probation to 20 years in prison, all for the same crime because there's all these different levels that that's – I mean our law, the pro proliferation of our laws has created this system where – you charge a different crime when the underlying crime is still exactly the same. Right, because that's like, a real problem. It's like if you, you know, someone has held someone up at gunpoint, so they get charged with, you know, uh, theft. They get charged with, um, you know, brandishing a firearm, use of the firearm in a felony, 
and you know six you know possession of a firearm without a license and like you know probably said Breaking dozen other right, yeah, right. Made, so you know now now they're like well you know we'll we'll drop all the charges except for this one if you plead guilty to it or except for these two and, and now you have an injustice because this one action now there's you violated of saying, 20 what laws. is the main category that this action that should this action requires punishment for it becomes we're going to punish him for this secondary thing and ignore the primary which is inherently unjust. And so when we think about these things, we just need to recognize that, I mean, one of the purposes, I mean, the purpose for justice is to get evil out of a society, right? It's putting the evil out from among you. And when you start to say, well, if the person, you know, pled guilty, then you shouldn't put the evil out from among you. Sorry, that doesn't work. I mean, it's, the evil is the crime, and that's what you're supposed to put out. And when you start to take all these external factors, then all of a sudden what you end up with is just accepting the evil in your society. And that's where we are. So what if I make this argument? What if I make the argument using some of those, the facts we've pointed out here? There's too many crimes. Can't prosecute all the crimes. Too many criminals. Can't prosecute all the criminals. Not enough resources in the court system in order for us to actually investigate all the things as, as would be ideal in, in this kind of a scenario. So what we're doing is we're going to compromise. And and by making these compromises, I'm actually, let's say the net number of years that people spend in prison is higher by me making these compromises than it would be if I took all these cases to court. Unashamedly pragmatic about it. That's my approach. And And what I would say is what you will get is what we have gotten. What you'll get is more and more criminals because God says, if you don't put the evil out from among you, you get more of it. And so now we have a much bigger, you know, we have a much bigger problem to deal with because we've taken that pragmatic approach, which is completely non-pragmatic because it's against what God said, which is never pragmatic to go against God. And so it sounds like that will help, but all you're actually doing, understanding the word of God, all you're actually doing is keeping more leaven in. Which, will prom- which God promises it will grow. God promises it will expand. And so, yes, you'll put more people in prison. And then the next year you'll put more people in prison. And the next year you'll put more. And because you're going to get more. Especially, because you're not doing what God said. And especially when you start with the fact that God didn't tell you to put them in prison in the first in right, prison exactly. In the first place. Our issue here isn't that prosecutors are doing too many plea bargains. And the, the fix for it is they stop doing plea bargains. I mean – you know, what should a prosecutor do? Well, you know, that's a question. But, I mean, there's a lot of more issues behind it. Because for a prosecutor just to say, I'm not taking any pleas, I'm taking every case to trial, well, you're going to have a whole new set of problems. I mean, ultimately, you need the you know the laws to be fixed to really fix the actual problem. And, and I would agree that, and the problem is that our law, laws stop being about putting out the evil from among you. That's the root of the problem. Right, it became let's train people how to be better at evil. Let's put them in prison, which is really what prison does: is it trains them how to be better at evil. And so we've forgotten what the purpose is of the justice system. So what we do is we create all these secondary punishments, and then we go, we show quote unquote mercy, which is merciless, on these supposed crimes that we've now lessened what the results are, what the consequences are, and then we're surprised that we get more, and then we say it's too big of a problem, and so. So, yes, it's that our laws are wrong. It's that, that we have injustice at all kinds of different levels. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't certain things that prosecutors in and of themselves are doing that are wrong. Like, 
you know, they shouldn't charge people six times for the same thing. They shouldn't charge people with things that they aren't sure that they can prove just to try to coerce them into pleading. I mean, there are clear yeah, in things the plea they do bargain wrong. system. There is definitely lots of things that they do wrong, but that's what we, but we shouldn't be blaming the prosecutors. That's what we have chosen that we want as a people and as a society. And what we should also recognize is the consequence of that choice is more crime. The consequence of that choice is growing of evil in our culture. But what we've done is we've divorced mercy in the law. Divorced mercy from the law. From the law. Okay. And and what I mean by that is as soon as the church starts to say, not that God saves you by the law, but he saves you to the law. When the church loses the idea that he saves you so that your sins will be put to death, so that your sins will be destroyed – from the justification, sanctification is about destroying sins in you. Glorification is about destroying the remaining sin in you. And so that salvation is about the destruction of sin. Salvation is about changing a person to walk in more and more righteousness. So that's what mercy looks like. It's about causing people to walk in more and more righteousness. But that's not what the church teaches anymore. The church teaches that mercy is to get away with things. Mercy is you had this bill against you. And that God was merciful, and he's just going to say, I'm not going to charge it on you. Right? That's how we've perverted mercy to make it much smaller than the glory of God's mercy. Right. And in that, when you then start to say, that's what God's mercy is, then you look at a murderer and you say, should we put him to death? And the answer is, of course not. We should be merciful. If you look at mercy the biblical way, you go, should we put him to death? Yes, we should put him to death because God said that's what was merciful that you put him to death to put the evil out from among you. And so it's really the church's change in the view of mercy. All of a sudden they say, well, we can't pay that price of being merciless by putting that person to death because we twisted the, the definition of mercy so that we think we have this huge cost that we're being merciless when the reality is we're being merciful and it's not a cost. We want to deny that what God has required is necessary. When he says in Micah 6, 8, what has God required of you? Do justly and love mercy. That's exactly what you just described is by doing justly, mercy is produced. God produces mercy. God causes mercy to come about. We believe you show mercy and you don't need justice. And we're not even truly showing, ju- showing mercy in doing so. And we see a good example of this in Scripture in Joshua 7, 23-26. And Achan answered Joshua, right? Achan yeah, they they lose against AI, and everybody's going, "Why?" And and Achan had stolen things and hid them in his tent, and and Joshua through the casting of lots discovers who it is. So when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. 
So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acor to this day. We want to go, well, he confessed it. We need to show mercy to him. He admitted what he did. He admitted his temptation. He came clean about the whole thing. And a lot of times, these are things that the plea bargain requires, right? It doesn't just require you to go, I'll accept this punishment. It requires you to go, this is what I did. This is why I did it. So you say all those things, and then they go, well, we're going to, you know, you confess this, you're open, you, you apologized, you did all these things to the family, so therefore we're not really going to punish you that much. And that's not what Joshua did at all. Joshua went and judged him and still said, this is what mercy is. He didn't cause the, the punishment to change based on the response of the person. And we separate understanding what the crime is, having two or three witnesses. We don't separate anymore that from the punishment. We have connected them intrinsically together, which always leads to injustice. So you're, you're I mean, you're basically coercing people to lie because there's people where they could be either, you know, say they're wrongfully accused, they could either be facing, you know, years in prison, or lie and say you did it and ba- and you don't go to prison. I mean, and that's the choice they have. And to give the scope, I know a very specific case that the person was offered six months of a suspended sentence. What a suspended sentence means is if you're on probation for a certain period of time and you get through that probation without violating probation, I mean, you basically make a call a week to a probation officer. If you get through, I think it was like two years probation, then he serves no time, that's it. The sentence goes away. If he violates probation, he got six months in prison. That was the offer of the plea. He rejected that offer of the plea and went to trial, and he got 18 years. So it's not like these things are close together. These things are dramatically apart, what they're pleading to and what they're actually punished if they're tried. And when you have that huge discrepancy, there is a huge desire for people to go, well, okay, so I can just have to call probation officer once a week for two years, or I can take the risk of 18 years in prison. And, I mean, if you're innocent, the pressure on you to lie is unbelievable. And the prosecutors, they want to basically go, okay, so I see I see Joshua. He seems stiff-necked. So I'll plead him like a month. And I look at Charles. He seems easygoing. I'll give him, I'll say, a year in prison for him to avoid the 18 years because it's it's about getting the plea, and it's a negotiation. It's not about justice. It's about a negotiation. Right. What do I need to do to make the sale, right? And right. so every person, you look at them and you go, yeah, the two of them did exactly the same thing, but I'm going to offer Joshua a lot different than what I'll offer Charles because they're different people. They have different interests. And But both of them, maybe if I make the offer high enough, they'll just lie, and then it's gone. And I look at my – Conviction rate. My conviction rate just went up because when you go and you file that that plea bargain, that's considered a conviction. And let's be honest, it's it gets even worse than that because sometimes what they do is they offer you a plea if you'll testify against someone else. Right. So now you're not even just deciding whether you're now you're saying, "Will I lie? Will I lie about the other person?" Let's say the other person didn't do it, but they're saying, "If you'll say that they were doing it, we'll give you a reduced sentence." So now. 
you know, I mean, they're making you be complicit in, in sending someone else to prison because they'll pick which one. Like you said, it's that negotiation again. Which one can you paint as? I think this person's the one we're going to choose. They're going to be the bad guy. The other guys will all pin it on them. That's you know, I mean, yeah. it, it's incredibly evil. And and you know, when, what, even once you're in prison, it's not over because a lot of states have parole systems where if you don't say I did it, I'm so sorry, I did it, you're not going to get parole. So. You know, you, you, another, if you didn't actually didn't do it, another huge incentive to lie because, you know, otherwise your sentence is going to be much longer. Right. Even if you went to trial, a lot of times if you went to trial, you're convicted and you still are unwilling to say you did it because say you didn't do it because trials aren't perfect. They weren't intended to be perfect. God doesn't say you will determine perfect justice. He says, here's the process that you're supposed to follow. And so in doing that, when you when you do that and you get that person in there, I mean, it's usually like a third of the sentence. So if you're sentenced for 18 years, after 12 years, you can go up to parole. And if you don't tell the parole board, oh, I'm so sorry about what I did, six more years. And this is just, we just need to recognize how evil and how contrary this is to the justice of God. God says, you know, you steal an ox, you pay back fivefold. If it's not found with you, I mean, that gets complicated with stealing, but so maybe murder is easier to see that you commit murder and your blood must be shed. Doesn't matter if you, you, you cry out for mercy does. I mean, none of those things matter. That's what the civil magistrate is supposed to do is to shed your blood. And that means there is no incentive for that guy to lie about the other guy. Yes. The two of us killed him together. Yeah. I'll testify against him. Well, if you know, you'll still be put to death. You're not going to do that. But if you know what you'll get is 20 years in prison and he'll get put to death, you go, yeah, he was the one that was, you know, we did it together and he was there. And then you go to court and those disparate punishments are very common. Yeah, we hear on the news all the time. So and so is cooperating with prosecutors. And the whole biblical argument is that doesn't really matter. That's just not part of the equation, whether or not they're cooperating with the prosecutors. And part of that is we've rejected how God says you're supposed to determine guilt by two or three witnesses, not coerced witnesses, which is what we usually want to embrace as coerced witnesses, right? You're going to get you're going to get the death penalty if you don't agree to turn witness against him. And and so we get coerced witnesses, and then we will take frequently the court system that one witness. People don't understand how witnesses are supposed to work well enough so that they hear that one witness who's been bought off, and they don't understand how the system works, so they go and convict the other person. I mean, it. we need to recognize how much God is looking at our system and really saying these are an incredibly unjust people because we are a very unjust people. I think something you said earlier was about the purpose of justice is to bring light on a situation. There's a part of it when the person says, I killed one person. You don't know what they did. And if by not looking, you don't actually know. You know what I mean? I mean, there's this, and, and often people don't want to know, right? I mean, they don't want to look. They don't want to poke at things. I mean, this happens in churches all the time. The pastor gets caught in something, and he says, it was just this, and I just want to, you know, and nobody wants to ask any more questions. They, they effectively want to plead down to this is all. But there's a part of it where this was revealed to you, and you're supposed to go look. You're supposed to go find out. You're supposed to drag this out into the light. You're line. supposed to make sure you put the evil out from among you, and you can only make sure you put the evil out from among you when you understand the evil. Right. If you don't understand the evil, you can't. 
And it's so simple to go, well, he kind of confessed to this, so let's just you know put him on leave or even, even get rid of him. But how much have you put the evil out from among you? Because a lot of times you're not like exposing it to the point that the person is actually hurt, that knowledge is enough out there so that people go, wait a second, this guy shouldn't be a pastor. And how many of those people go on and pastor other people? The SBC is like has a huge problem with this because of the molestations, that this is exactly what happens. And yes, they should have the the state crime should have been, you know, pursued about those things so that right. there's actual justice because we are talking about the plea bargain system and how the justice is perverted in it. But let's understand that when a when a church hides sins that should be prosecuted by the state as the avenger of the wrath of God and we instead go, oh, yeah, we're just going to dismiss it. We're just going to – at least he's not a pastor here anymore. We should just recognize how much it is the church that's driving injustice. How many times do people not go to trial because they don't – they don't want their daughter to have to testify? That's part of the cost of justice. You think about it. It makes people – it makes people stronger. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's. We, I think we, I don't know that it, it'll be published when we do. I don't know what the publish order is, but we did an episode about where we talked about having a victim complex, and there's a part of it where what the plea bargain system does is it it, it encourages a victim complex as opposed to no, I'm going to confront the evil that was done. I'm going to speak out against the evil that was done, and it changes the culture. I mean, but that's part of the cost. That's part of the cost of actually dealing with the sin. And, and our goal is to avoid all of those things. And so, I mean, I think, I mean, just you, you see this. I mean, it's just, it's every single level. It's we don't want to see it. We don't want to know. We don't want to endure it. We don't want to believe that sin has a cost because we like sin. And, it, and fundamentally, we're also saying as a culture that the cost of doing that is less than the cost of, or is, yeah, less than the cost of justice. Right. And the reality is when Christ says, my burden is light, he's saying the burden of walking in righteousness is light compared to the burden of the world. Right. And we think that that it will work out so well if we just do plea bargains because then we'll have, you know, maybe the net, there'll be a net gain in, in, in number of years that people will serve in prison. But in the end, it will be a heavy burden. And as a nation, we need to recognize how much we're bearing that burden. We have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. Where do you think that comes from? And we go, oh, but the plea bargain system is is reducing the backlog of people. Well, you know what? Actually punishing people for what they did and doing it in such a way that people don't think they can game the system. Because right now what we're teaching people, and we think that things happen in abstract, but if you tell people, hey, you turn state's evidence, you'll get a lower sentence. You advertise these things. You talk about them on television and stuff. And people are all, they always think that they'll be the ones that successfully game the system. So it actually promotes them doing sin rather than causing fear to fall upon them right. because they go, I'll be the guy, I'll be the guy who wins the lottery. I'll be the guy that they, the prosecutor comes to and says, yeah, you just, you know, rat on your friends, you'll go free. And so that gives them real incentive to commit crimes. And so we keep producing more crimes thinking we're getting rid of crimes, but we don't because it requires real justice to do that. I think it's worth emphasizing again, you know, it's from the Old Testament is the person who decides what the punishment is, is not the person who's prosecuting the crime. It's not even the judge, right? It's that you're supposed to be setting a standard for everybody that everybody is bound to. 
You know, Deuteronomy 17, 11 through 12 says, According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. And this is the case where they go, we don't know what the punishment should be. And then they get the the high priest and the other priesthood and, and other leaders, and they decide what it is. And the rule is you have to do that. You don't get to play games. You don't get to say, well, I like this defendant, so it will be less. It says very clearly, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. You can't make it worse. You can't make it less. What you have to do is exactly what was done, what was commanded, what was legislated, right? In our system, it would be the legislature says this crime deserves this punishment. And you're not allowed to play games with that. And we think that our system will work better because we play games with that constantly. If we had situations where more cases were going to trial, then that would be that would be how our legislature would be enacting their authority because those cases would then be put into the hands of a judge or a jury who have sentencing guidelines imposed upon them. And specifically what the legislature saw was that judges were very biased in their opinion. So they stopped going, the judge gets to decide the punishment. You know, it's for, be from two years to 20 years. They went, nope, no more of that. There will be sentencing guidelines. They will have to judge and they will say, okay, this is worth 20 years. And then he'll go, well, they cooperated. Well, you get six months off from that, according to the guidelines. This, and they add it all up. And then at the end, they do math to determine what the punishment is. That's in line with this. I'm not saying that all those things are right, that they're giving benefits for the, all the right things and things. But that's the idea is that there's a ju- standard of justice that was enacted. And the plea bargain system changes what they confess to so that it falls to different minimum sentencing guidelines. The legislature tried to fix this problem, and they just moved the problem from the judges who were giving arbitrary sentences, and they moved it to the prosecutors who now do arbitrary, you know, charging of, well, and arbitrary bargains, but arbitrary charges, right? Because they can manipulate what the charges are so that they get the sentence that they want. So they moved it from the the purview of the judge, and now the prosecutor makes it up, which is why you look at Soros, all the uh, district attorneys that he worked to get elected, because he understands exactly how the system worked, and that we've shifted it down that these people have a lot more right to do things than they ever did before, because this problem of not being willing to bear the burden of justice, they bypass the legislature in a different way. And I mean, and it is an important footnote to make is that, you know, whenever you have a plea bargain, it always has to be approved by the judge. Right. So, you know, the judge also would have, you know, pot- potentially a lot of room to rein these type of things in if they were going to, you know, even, you know, they, they, they can just reject the deal. They, they, they have various things they can do. And what they could do, which would be one of the reasonable, I mean, one of the reasonable ways to deal with some of this is to go, you can't drop all these charges. You can't drop a charge that's worthy of 20 years for one that means it's a misdemeanor that you you get a $100 fine. You're not allowed to do that. But the judges accept that kind of thing all the time. And that's accepted as the right way to to be a judge in our society. Because what the judge would effectively say is, is, 
you should not charge him with anything that you don't really think he did or you don't think that you have evidence for, right? I mean, that's, right. that's your your charges should be based on evidence, not based on coercion, not based because in the end now it's not based on speculation where they just speculate. Well, it looks like this happened, so we'll just assume that he did these things. So we're just going to we'll, pad the charge list because in the end, because then they can enter into this negotiation phase, and that's that's really important too, right? Because without requiring, without even requiring the charges, the initial charges. To be based on something solid, that now that now inflates the whole process as then, well. Then, just like any kind of negotiation, you start with a high offer and you hope for something down down the line. Or if they're afraid that the judge will be upset about that, what they do is they hold charges on the side, and they go, "If you don't accept this plea bargain, we're going to add these charges because otherwise." So you can't just simply do it at the judge because if you do it, the prosecutor simply won't press the charges because he can always add charges later. And so it's up to the prosecutor. So if he needs to manipulate the judge, he can manipulate the judge. Now, you know, I mean, you know, they could also say it's not fair for you to add these charges on. I mean, right. I'm, but I'm, the person I'm who's hearing that, that doesn't know that. That's the biggest issue. Right. The, the person, judge. Also, they also have a, you know, if that's the, if they change the system to work that way, the defense attorney would understand that, and they all have you maybe know, defense attorneys. Exactly. I mean, I, I when you hear these things, when we talk about what will fix them. What you really as a Christian have to come down to is the laws of the nation and those things being structured right, they're a manifestation of a people who love justice. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like you can't make laws that will fix a corrupt people, but a people who want justice will start to structure their laws in ways. <laughs> what you need is a people that fear God. Right. Well, because in, in you can fear God without desiring justice, but if you fear God— Can you? Yeah. Because you can fear, fear God without desiring fearing, justice, right? Because fearing God produces justice, whether you want it or not. I understand what you're saying, and it you make that face, but there is a big difference because because <laughs> the reality is the church can never teach the people to desire justice. It's not possible. I concede the point, but well, no, I'm saying this for the audience. It's I, not for you, Charles. I, as egotistical as you might be. <laughs> I just wanted it on the record. I see that I lost. I was wrong. But the point is what the church can do is teach people to fear God. That's what right. we are to be doing. And and there's plenty of examples through the history of the world where the church has succeeded in doing that. And what you mean by that specifically is a person who – you could have a person who is a vile person who sees someone else go out, they do something, and they get put to death. And the next day he goes out, he has no desire for justice in the world, but he doesn't he doesn't do something because he saw something which increased his fear of God. Because he says, There is a judge in the world, there is something that will cause there will be something done against my evil. And that's really all you I mean that's And and fundamentally it goes to if the church is saying God is merciful, which means he closes his eyes to sin, which is the modern general definition of mercy in the church in America then how do people fear God? Right. They don't. He's and, merciful. He'll just close his eyes to my sin. In worst case, I need to pray a prayer, and then he'll close his eyes to my sin, as opposed to going, no, God is just, and his mercy is reflected in what he tells us to do. Then all of a sudden you go, wait a second, God's saying to put people to death. I should recognize that that's mercy that he tells people to put out evil from among them, and that that the whole society, if the church is saying, this is how the society gets better, this is how things progress in the society, it's it, intrinsic as that in that is the fear of God. The church has to love justice. 
The church actually has to love justice. The church is where it will start, and it will flow out to the rest of the people, and it will end up being manifested in the laws and causing people to have fear of God. But I mean, a sign of the church not loving justice is that it doesn't want to talk about how God has judged, right? Sure. Because if you love justice, then you go, look at how God destroyed Israel. Look at how God destroyed Judah, which the Old Testament specifically says, this is an example that we're supposed to look at and say, this is a proverb, this is a byword. This, we're supposed to look at the Jews and go, this is what God's mercy and justice looks like. And instead we go, these are the exalted people of God. Well, that's a huge problem because that's basically defangs fear of God because what you're, what God gave you is an example that you're supposed to look at and go, how easy it is for me to say I follow God and behave just like the Jews did. This is what I should expect. I mean, embedded in, in this example that God has given to the world for 2,000 years, when you misdefine it, you eliminate fear in God. Instead of going, you understand, if we continue on this path, which most of us can look at our society and go, if we continue on this path, we will be destroyed. But yet we look at it, but we don't go, that's because God is good and he is just and he is merciful. And too often the church just goes, God's merciful, he closes his eyes. If the church actually repents, it will fix all the other things. Yes. And I think there's this part of it where we – we know that's the job of the church, but it really will, in the same way that the culture isn't willing to bear the cost of sin, and God, but if it is, God will show mercy. If the church repents, God will actually show mercy to the whole nation. God will show mercy by causing that change. And I think there's this part people look at it and go, this, this situation's not solvable. It's too complicated. It's actually or not related. Right. That's, that's I mean, they don't see the direct connection because in the end, God is in direct control of it. And he's doing it for the sake of his people, not for the sake of all the people in the world, but for the sake of his people. Right. And so he causes all these things, and we look at the crime rate, and when we look at the crime rate exploding, we should go, so how is this good for the church? Well, <laughs> the church is being driven to not go, oh, yeah, God just – we should just close our eyes to sin. It's going, no, there's a real cost to that which the church shouldn't have to be educated in. Anybody that reads the Old Testament knows that's just not true. There's a cost to sin. God judges sin. He cares about sin. He constrains sin. He does all these things. He destroys nations over sin. Read the book of Isaiah. You see it over and over and over again, how he destroys nations because of sin. And then all of a sudden you go, he'll destroy our nation because of sin. But when you're closing your eyes and just saying, God is not the God of the Bible, it ends up really destroying the society. And so the destruction's coming on our society, so hopefully the church will open its eyes and say, who is really this God that we claim to worship? I mean, reading the Old Testament is a, a big part of, of the issue because when you have a church that's saying, oh, we're New, we're New Testament believers, you know, they're not reading, you know, the places in Scripture where God, uh, God, God most clearly, you know, lays out his standards of justice. They're not saying with David, oh, how I love your law. And so we shouldn't be surprised that our... Our culture's idea of justice is going further and further from what God in his word says justice is because the church, by and large, just ignores the, the part where he really gets down to the details of what is justice. And, we, and even in the New Testament, we, don't, we mysticize the part about Christ riding through, right, and the blood splashing on his, his, you know, up to his horse's bridle and stuff like that and him being cut, covered in blood. We don't go, God is just and Christ is just, and Christ is not going to go, I'll close my eyes to sin. Christ is going, I will destroy sin. 
and the church goes, no, 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 he's he's not like the God of the Old Testament. That's why we don't want to read the Old Testament. We'll read parts of the New Testament, too. We've said this a number of times, but in justice, we've switched the focus over to the cost. But it's really, I mean, the government, the goal of the government, according to Scripture, is to avenge to avenge the wrath of God. And that's, that's covered in Romans 13, 3 through 4. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. I mean, this is just really straightforward. God put the authority there, and the authority will tell you. The authority will, when, when you're brought before them, they will give you a sentence. They will look at you. They'll tell you what needs to be done, and you do it. And you do that thing that they tell you. And God has appointed them for this. God has appointed them to do this because it is about executing God's wrath and on him who practices evil. And instead, what the church wants to teach is the purpose of the state is to execute God's mercy. And that's not the purpose of the state. And so the way we get our justice system, quote unquote, where we go, you do this, you, you give this to the state and you give that to the state. It's not about saying, how does God's wrath get avenged? It's about what deal you can make with the state. And so the state has changed its position to let's do things that promote our, our reelection with the people because we can talk about our high conviction rate or you know, on and on, and they've fundamentally forgotten that they're to be servants of God. And the church isn't saying to them, you must be servants of God, which means you have to avenge his wrath. That's the specific reason why God appointed them is not to show God's mercy, but to show his wrath. This is just another instance of what we've talked about many times on our podcast about how the state is exalting itself and putting itself in the place of God. This is this is an instance where a particular branch of the state is acting as if there's not a greater authority over them. And that they're not supposed to be servants of that authority and doing what and, that and, authority demands. And fundamentally, I mean, just the way the transaction works, it is recasting the nature of the crime as something – between the individual and the state, or specifically the individual and the prosecutor, because right. how you interact with that prosecutor changes what you get charged with, changes your sentence, as opposed to, no, what did you do in the eyes of God? How did you offend a fellow man, not me? When you think of the state being the avenger of God's wrath, and then you look at what they're basically doing, because when you when you agree to a plea bargain, you have to go and swear before the judge that your statement is true. So instead of being the avenger of God's wrath, what they are is promoters of perjury. So they're like doing the opposite. God says that these things, he despises these things. And they in turn, instead of fulfilling that, they're actually promoting greater sin. They're promoting further sin, I should say, because obviously somebody commits murder. You can't necessarily say that's greater than perjury. But that's what they're doing, and perjury is very – God says the punishment for perjury should be the same punishment that you would receive if you didn't perjure or for the person that you were trying to convict of, of whatever crime it was. So if you perjure yourself in a murder case, that perjury is the equivalent of murder. 
and the prosecutors are basically promoting it when they're supposed to be avenging the wrath of God. They're actually incurring the wrath of God on our society. And I think that's really a basic core principle of our plea bargain system is there is so much pressure to perjure yourself. And a lot of them, they don't, you know, there are some plea bargain agreements where they basically can say, I accept this without confessing. But a lot of them, the prosecutor still goes, no, you have to, you have to confess. You know, and Exodus 23, one says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. That's exactly what the plea bargain system ends up doing. And it's structured to do that is to cause people to, to produce unrighteous witnesses. And that's, that's wickedness. A society's views of lying are, is, are fundamentally connected to justice. If you believe that lying is acceptable, whatever your caveats start to be, that's where the erosion of justice begins. You can lie in this case. You can lie in this case. You can lie in this case. And you know now we've got it where if you lie to the government, you're completely – you know they can charge you and they can put you in prison. They can tell you any lie they want. There's no standard on them to tell you the truth, but they expect you to be honest in every single thing, and except when they ask you to lie. Or they pressure you to lie, and you know they'll never prosecute you for lying about that thing that you claim that you were accomplice right. of what the other person was doing. Because they're signing their name beside it. Right. And I mean in, – and we have to understand that some of these things that are going on in our culture, like people are talking about bail reform – Bail reform is very connected to the plea bargain system. This is B-A-I-L. B-A-I-L. <laughs> Not bail worship. Not bail worship. <laughs> but bail reform, right? There's a lot of pushing on that, you know, going down to zero cash bail and all this other stuff. And, and you look at that and you go, this is insane. But on the other hand, you have to recognize that this is what is how the plea bargain system is used is why there's all this pressure to do bail reform. Because say that Say you're a prosecutor, and the way they do it is they add up certain amounts for each charge that you get charged with. So say you're Donald Trump, and they charge you with 31 counts, where they could have charged with one count, but they charge 31 counts. So say you, you know, say you, you molested somebody, and they can list that as one count, or they can list it as 20 counts. Well, if it's 20 counts, each one of those adds to your bail. Right? And so they can they can basically charge you with as much bail as they want to. Well, what does bail mean? Well, bail means that you sit in prison if they charge you with enough so that you can't raise it, that you sit in prison unless you take a plea bargain. Right. So a lot of these people, the bail system is a means that the prosecutor uses to put pressure on the, de the defendant to confess to somebody. So, yeah, there's there's good reasons to say there should be bail, but when it's being perverted and twisted, it becomes a problem. Right. And that's where we are. We've allowed a government to act however it wants and not saying it has to do justly, just saying, well, at least they got convictions. Look at this guy. He has a 96% conviction rate. And well, guess what? They're all plea bargains. Depiction of justice on television and in the media, I think people have accepted the right that that they should be able to charge you with things, that, they, that the idea that they should be able to put pressure on you that has nothing to do with their actual evidentiary belief that you did something, that they should be able to put, we've accepted that justice requires that. And scripture says justice, in fact, that is, that is injustice.
And a lot of times the way they do that is they do it with one witness, right? The, the Bible says by two or three witnesses, every fact is established. Well, what they'll do is they'll have one witness that they know may not get a conviction, but they'll have a witness, and then they pile up charges based on that witness, a witness that may not even be good enough to bring them to trial, but they don't use the same standard to set bail as they use to trial. And I'm not saying they should do the same, but there should be a better prima facie case that you have to make than what's being made now. Basically, as long as the grand jury indicts, you can charge them with it. You can charge bail, and the grand jury system is pretty broken. Right. There was the famous saying of the guy that, you know, I could I could indict a ham sandwich if I wanted to. Right. I mean, because because it's not it's it's supposed to be honest prosecutors bringing the evidence that they have and the the grand jury saying, yes, that looks like you have sufficient evidence to charge that crime in an adversarial system. Only one side gets to speak to the grand jury. But being adversarial is now considered acceptable. So you don't have to bring light to the situation. You're allowed to just bring your side. That's a really good example to show that the system was not designed to be as adversarial as it has become today. Because in the case of the grand jury, like you said, it was designed that only one side could show evidence to the grand jury. That means that he cannot be adversarial in that instance. His, the expectation is that he will only show them evidence that he absolutely believes to be true, or else you would have to have a second party there to battle him. And so in the, you know what I mean? And that, right. I mean, that should be an It's an adversarial system where the, one of the adversaries is not allowed to be present. But, right. but, it's, but it's a protection for the for – the, uh, or supposed to be a protection for the defendant that he might not even get charged with something if they can't convince the grand jury. Right. And so if you have a non-adversarial system where you're supposed to be bringing light and the, the prosecutor is supposed to give the evidence that he has and the jury is supposed to say – you have sufficient evidence to convict, but that's not how it happens. They cannot give exculpatory evidence. There's all kinds of things. And then the system gets worse, right? Because the people who are pushing for plea bargain reform, one of the points that they make is, so what happens? So say, say even though they have a duty to bring exculpatory information, say they don't. Well, what's the best thing to do if you've actually broken the law as a prosecutor? You get the person to plea. Because that means nobody can examine what you did. Right. It's the end of it. Right. And so so now what happens is instead of like cleaning up your system when you have a prosecutor that will break the law, which a lot of them do, because they don't – I mean, that's why there's so many laws – I mean – the I mean, system is pretty broken. This is why they frequently require you to swear that you did the act because it is literally the judicial end of the inv- – Right. They can't reopen it because you said I did it. Most government corruption that's found in the judicial system is found during trials or during discovery of trials because during discovery is where all of a sudden you found out, wait a second – they withheld this guy, information. They, or they cool. tapped his phone without a warrant. This is where you find out those things. But if you you go, we did something wrong. We want to hide it. We'll give you a plea bargain that we know you'll accept. And then it goes away. And nobody will ever find out our crimes. And so the corruption, catching prosecutors in corruption and in breaking the law and how they're pursuing people – has dropped dramatically with plea bargains in the same way because they can they do it to protect themselves because it's about sure. them and it's not about the crime it's not about being the avenger of god's wrath it's i like this person i don't like this person i don't want this person could hurt me so i'll give him a better deal because that's in the mix too and so as we see these things that the fbi is doing and we see these things that police departments are doing 
where, oh, guess what? I accidentally didn't turn on my body cam, even though I'm required to have it on by law. I mean, all these games that they play, they play these games constantly. And then if they think they're going to get caught, they just offer a plea bargain and it all goes away and they never get caught. And the person who got the plea bargain think they got a sweetheart. I mean, you know, they're looking at it. They going, did get a sweetheart deal. Right. I mean, in a sense, right? They right. didn't get punished for the crime that they had the goods on them. Sure. And so we have to recognize that the system has ripple effects that are really damaging in increasing the corruption in our government. Another element of corruption in the system is that, you know, the person who you hire an attorney, right, who's going to, like, pursue everything and make it, like, really hard for the prosecutor as opposed to somebody who has a public defender. They can basically go, you know what? This is going to be a really painful case for you. This guy has enough money the to person the prosecutor. Who hires the, the person who hires the private attorney. So he hires an expensive attorney, and the expensive attorney walks in there and goes, you know me. You know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue every little thing, and I'm going to make your office spend so much money on this because my client's going to pay me. I like it. All of a sudden, he's going to get a lot better plea bargain than the public defender because basically he's bribing the prosecutor by saying, I will save you work. That's different. Sure. And so all of a sudden you get really unequal justice depending on the quality of, I mean, the how good your attorney is, how expensive he is, how, how much money you have because you can basically incent that prosecutor to do things that otherwise he wouldn't do because it's like reverse bribery, right? Instead of saying we're going to pay you, what they're going to say is I'll make you suffer. And they do this all the time. And so all of a sudden you get this unequal justice because the guy who can hire a $500 an hour lawyer is going to get a much better deal, a much different deal than the guy who's using a public defender who's going to look at the case for five minutes when he walks in the door and talks to the, the prosecutor. Because that, that prosecutor knows that public defender is not going to make me do any work. And so it's a real perversion of justice that that really has ripple effects. There's a situation where it needs to be adversarial and it's not, right? right? You know what I mean? I mean, it's an actual case where the public, you know, where the the public defender probably even has more alignment with not making waves for the, pro you know what I mean? There's, there's more alignment there is than there should be. Or there's a, yeah, or there's alignment. A lot of the public defenders, you get paid a lot lower than your rate because right. they are, because big cities have dedicated public defender offices, but that's not how a lot of them work. You just, pull an attorney who makes $300 an hour and you pay him $50 an hour because you now assigned a case to him as a public defender. Well, he, do you think he's going to defend that, that criminal the same as he would defend a regular criminal? Well, of course not. If he's getting paid $300 rate, right? an hour, he's going to want to spend a lot more hours on the guy paying him $300 an hour than the guy paying him $50 an hour or than the court paying him $50 an hour. So we're creating these, all these incentives for different, different ways to short circuit the system, which are kind of a form of bribery because you're basically saying, you know, I can make your life miserable for the next two years if you want to pursue this, or you can give me this plea bargain and we'll just walk away now. As a culture, we're very interested in creating equity in areas where equity is very, is not where God doesn't require it. And we're not interested in equity where God demands it. And well, I mean, a lot of it is found. I mean, a lot of it is foundational issues that are wrong, and then you have fix upon fix upon fix, and the fix right. just creates ten more problems that then you need fixes for. You know, because 
But like like trials now take a like for like a murder trial take years. Well, every you know that's should it take years? Well, no. But every single reason why it takes years was to fix what was probably a legitimate issue at one point, and the fix you add all those fixes up, and now it takes years for everyone when. You know, and and it doesn't. And that's kind of my last point that I made is it doesn't take years for everyone because the person who has a public defender, he's not going to pursue all those. But the person who can afford to pay a lawyer for two years, he's going to pursue every one of that. And we have so much so many laws that are related to all these details that somebody who wants to delay a trial can delay a trial a long time. And so that's where you get this really unequal justice, and it's it's these ridiculous things, but people can keep raising them, and they can keep raising objections. And, I mean, it's it's a system that really favors the rich, and that's not a good thing. God says that's a horrible thing. At the same time, you know, I don't know how the rules of how it is appointed, but there are public defenders who, you know, years are spent, millions of dollars are spent on public defenders to defend people who don't have any money for murder and things like that. So, you know... It's not all bad in our legal system. It's not that you show up if you're poor. Well, too bad you don't you still have, have money. a lawyer. Yeah, you have, so there are there are a lot of positives that we're not talking about. Right, and and again, you know, the bigger cities that have a dedicated public defender's office, yeah, you know, they're much more likely to spend you know a million dollars on a case because it's part of a big office and they have a big government and you know all those things. So. So there's inequality there that's in the system. And some of that just you just can't squeeze out, right? I mean, it's there's richer parts of the country and poorer parts, so the justice isn't going to be perfect. But we've stopped having equal justice as a goal. And that's a problem. We've talked a lot about the problems with it. And, you know, I can think of a few solutions, and most of them are based on things that we already talked about. But one is, I mean, the 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 discrepancy between the max sentence and the min sentence has just gotten so absurd. I mean, so unbelievable absurd that is, you know, you go basically scot-free or you go to prison for two decades. I mean, that's, that's an absurd difference. And you're not talking about the mandatory sentencing imposed by the legislature. You're talking about the practical difference between offerings in a plea bargain. Right. Because I'm saying, I mean, I thought the 18 years was pretty fair, which is what the legislature said the crime was worth, but what they were going to allow him to plead to, a lot smaller than that, like nothing, basically. And when you have that discrepancy, there is such a pressure to lie. There's such a pressure to, to deceive and there's such a pressure to have no justice or avenging of God's wrath because you're not saying this is what God says should happen. I mean, it's like Aiken, he still got put to death. We don't do anything like that anymore. And there's a whole another can of worms that hopefully we don't open too wide, which is, you know, how they're deciding who is going to, you know, what they're even going to charge people with, which is, you know, some of the recent high profile cases where Hunter Biden's getting this plea deal and people are saying, well, you know, this is, you know, a really great deal. And then, you know, and then other cases, you know, you have Trump and people are saying, well, they're, they're throwing the book at him, throwing every single, you know, 30 charges when it should have been one. And, you know. Without getting into the deals of that, I mean, there are definitely, I mean, if the prosecutor decides he's going to go after someone, he has a lot of ability to do that. If he wants to get someone off, he has a lot of ability to do that. I believe there was an article in the New York Times that was saying that they they were 
they were supporting the fact that the, there was a whistleblower in the Department of Justice that was saying that uh, they were prevented by the Department of Justice from bringing charges against Hunter Biden. I mean, to, it's gotten to the level at least where some of the evidence that's come, for, you know, and Merrick Garland says, I don't understand how that could have happened, you know. And so, I mean, there are at least when the New York Times covers it and at least, you know, reports on it, it's getting to the point where it's hard for them to deny the, the relevance of this. And so there are actually people starting to say, you know, Merrick Garland is either incompetent or he's lying. And, you know, that, <laughs> I have my bet. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. I, I don't think he got where he was by being incompetent. But, but well, you know, one interesting thing is not not all legal systems are based on a prosecutor bringing all the charges. You know, it seems like that even in Israel, there wasn't a pro- there was no prosecutor. It was, you know, you if you think someone committed a crime, you would bring them before the judges. And so switching to that, that's a lot to ask. That's throwing out hundreds of years of precedent. But, you know, I think <laughs> there you know, there are real, you know, issues that are just caused by the fact that there's like one guy, you know, who can bring who decides whether or not you're going to be have to face a court for a crime and he can just let you off and see in nigeria it works that way it works the way that the person who says that he was you know a crime was committed against him he brings his witnesses and he takes it to court and he causes the person to be arrested and it's in i'll tell you what that system has more problems than ours has because when it means that somebody who's attacking the poor well the poor doesn't have the resources to do that so it's yeah, it's what's the word? It's uh, open season. That's what oh. I'm trying to think. It's open season on the poor, but the wealthy, you don't touch the wealthy because they'll just charge you with the crime and they'll do the reverse. So, so having the prosecutor paid by the government was to try to deal with problems and it creates other problems. So I think you know, Nigeria is maybe not the greatest example to look forward because it doesn't matter what system you put in Nigeria, it would be. At the moment, it would be incredibly corrupt. So, I mean, one of the simple ways to help is that that the government has to do full what's called Brady disclosure, which is everything that they have to tell the the defense that they have to do full Brady disclosure before they can plea bargain, so that the defense knows what case they actually have. Right. Because the defense a lot of times doesn't know what case they have because they bluff. Right, let's because go, they're let's allowed to lie. Go back to the standard view, right? The guy gets arrested, he gets brought in, and the guy brings in the big stack of things and sets them down. I mean, at the point of plea bargaining, you're saying that is really the picture that frequently is there is they can pretend like they have this big stack of evidence, and you, they, they very well may not. And before trial, they have to slide that across the table and let you look at it. Right. Right. That's, but it should be but earlier. Totally. But it should be earlier in the process where they have to show you that before plea. But the prosecutor can actually lie, and it doesn't need to be a lie. Like we've got five witnesses. Right. The lie can be, I believe this case is good. I think I'll get a conviction with this case. Right. And you can't. It's an opinion, and the defense attorney can't look at it and go, "There's not a chance the the judge would throw out your evidence." He can't say that because he can't see it before plea bargain. So just making a, a rule that says that the defense attorney, that the defendant has the right to access the whole case like it would before trial, before a plea bargain, that would help a lot because then because there can't the be that deception. the trial. I mean, that's really... Plea, I mean, uh, right. We've moved it so that the plea bargain is where most of the trials happen, 98% of right. them at the federal level. And the defense attorney's blind. There's no light in it. Right. And so just forcing them to say, here's our case. You can accept this plea bargain or we'll take this case to trial. That would change it a lot. 
And a big, um, we already said it, but a big part of it is we have too many laws, so we can't have it that, like, you actually, your job is to, you know, enforce every single crime that's broken. You're, it's, you need to make sure that all the crime gets punished because we just have an abundance of laws. Or say that the charge has for any one incidence, you can only bring one charge so that you don't pick and choose, which is what they do. They bring a whole list of charges and then they can... You murder somebody, but we'll give we'll charge you with accidental homicide with a firearm, and they'll charge them with both, and then they'll plea down to the one. And what they need to do is go. You're only allowed to bring one charge related to that, and so then the plea gets to be a lot harder because that's that's part of the game they play as they throw all these other charges on, knowing that yeah, the person was guilty of those if they murdered somebody, or a lot of times they're guilty even if they didn't murder it, murder the person. You know, but but somebody saw him with a gun walking towards the building, and then the person gets shot, and they go, "Oh, you committed the murder." Well, maybe not, but they did commit the gun crime, so they get them to plead to that. In those kind of games, it's all these these mixed charges to try to play games and to try to manipulate the system, and somehow we need to clean that up and constrain those things. Because God says, if they did it, they're supposed to be punished. That's how you put the evil out from among you. I mean, one of the things that needs to happen is, the, I mean, there's there's two really I can think of that are pertain to the church is the people of God need to understand what justice is. If people don't understand what they what the justice system should be doing, they can't be outraged by it. You know what I mean? There's this part where you look at it and you go, I don't know if that's justice. I don't know if that's right. I don't know if that, you know what I mean? And there's a part of where the church has really lost a sense of understanding what is just. And the other one is, is the church just, the church needs to actually trust in the sovereignty of God. I mean, earlier on the episode, Jonathan kind of played the kind of the pragmatic guy who said, how do you deal with all these things? And there's a part of where a lot of Christians are in exactly the same place, and which is where the world is. The world goes, look, it's a mess. We're doing the best we can. And that's relying on the blind. It's, you know, it's looking at the blind of the world and going, they need to show us the way. The truth is, is the church is the only one who can really do this. Christ says, you're the light of the world. And if the church isn't being the light, there is no hope. I mean, and so, and God says, my people will be light. So, I mean, if the church actually does what it's supposed to, these things will start to be solved. But that's, I mean, you know, but if you look at the situation and you don't have faith, it looks hopeless. It really does. And related to that, very related to that is we, we pick avengers of God's wrath from people who don't fear God which is a really dangerous thing. And the church doesn't say, and it doesn't say you need to be saved to be a civil magistrate, but it says you need to fear God. And the reality is if you had prosecutors that feared God, that said, if we get, if we coerce somebody to commit perjury, I deserve the same judgment and God will send an avenger of his wrath against me. They'll be a lot more careful. And instead we, the church doesn't say, this is the biblical standard. Instead we go, this guy will be a good law and order guy. And this guy will let people go. Instead of going, who fears God? Because that's what you really want. We can see lots of problems in our society, and we talked about plea bargains tonight because it is a big problem. It's a big problem because it's proliferating crime everywhere. And really the solution is is for the church to start speaking of and fearing God itself and then speaking of it to the world outside. Because as long as we don't fear God, then there's no desire for justice because natural man will not desire justice. But yet, when you fear God, all of a sudden, those things start to fall into place. But the church wants to teach a false message. It wants to teach a message that God is not to be feared, even though he will send 
Wide is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go by it. He will send many to hell. We need to be giving that message to the world around us if we want to love our neighbor. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching.